Al Jazeera podcast. Since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, the world response has been divided. UN Security Council has failed to pass a draft resolution calling for a humanitarian pause in Gaza. Western countries like the United States, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom were quick to unequivocally support Israel. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. But Russia and China, who maintain a relationship with both Israel and Palestine, haven't been as vocal about standing with Israel. Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Chinese President Xi Jinping met in Beijing, both refusing to condemn Hamas. Putin placing blame on the U.S. for the conflict, not Hamas gunmen. Both countries have used the opportunity to highlight this as a failure of United States foreign policy. Meanwhile, the U.S. sent aircraft carriers to the region to deter any outside actors from participating in this war. This is not a moment for any party hostile to Israel to exploit these attacks to seek advantage. The world is watching. So where do Russia and China stand on the issue, and what do they stand to gain from this conflict? I'm Kevin Hurton, in from Alika Bilal, and this is The Take. Discussions about a ceasefire have been ongoing at the United Nations. The first ones to bring it up were the Russians, whose draft resolution failed to pass on October 16th. A Brazilian resolution was vetoed by the U.S. two days later. Then, another Russian resolution was vetoed on October 25th. The U.S. put forth its own resolution that same day, but that was then vetoed by China and Russia, who accused it of being unbalanced. Here's what the Israeli representative, Gilad Erdan, had to say in response. How would Moscow react if terrorist death squads wiped out entire neighborhoods in Moscow? As tensions seemed only to be escalating, Israel summoned the Russian ambassador in response to Moscow hosting Hamas officials for a visit. Since then, protests have erupted in Russia against the arrival of flights from Israel. We are also seeing these multiple videos of very angry crowds over there storming an airport in Dagestan, in the Russian uh, Republic, uh, after the arrival of a flight from Tel Aviv. Russia has blamed this unrest on what it calls outside influence. To get a better sense of the Russian perspective, we're talking to a journalist from there. My name is Nikolai Vrobyov. I'm a freelance uh, journalist, and I've covered the Russia-Ukraine conflict for Al Jazeera. This incident at the airport in Dagestan, what was Putin's reaction to it? And what might it say about his relationship with Israel at the moment? So, yeah, like everyone else, I was quite quite shocked when, uh, when I saw that. The Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, he's done the sort of usual thing where he's blamed so-called external forces. So it all started because of a rumor spread on a Telegram channel that there were going to be Israeli uh, refugees arriving at the airport. Mm. And 
That Telegram channel is run by a former Russian opposition politician who is now based in Ukraine. But he definitely has ties to the Ukrainian intelligence. That's what they're leading on here. That that this was some kind of foreign intelligence operation. That's how they're trying to present it to the world. Okay. Um, so what is what is Russia's official stance on the war between Hamas and Israel at the moment? So Moscow's position vis-a-vis uh, Israel and Gaza seems to be, at least officially, that they're on both sides. But we can see that perhaps they're leaning slightly towards the Hamas side. So Russia's called for a ceasefire. It's not easy making the Kremlin look like the reasonable party, but somehow they pulled it off. Moscow's also hosted a delegation from Hamas, and they've refused to designate the terrorist group, which many other nations have done. And in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas raid uh, early in October, Putin didn't call Bibi, he didn't offer his condolences, even though there are many Russian citizens among the victims. So many people thought that was a bit strange, and decided that maybe Russia's leaning more towards Hamas. So, okay, so then there was that suspicion that he might be leaning towards Hamas, and then Hamas ends up in Moscow. Um, What was Moscow's goal with actually meeting with members of Hamas? Uh, As far as I can understand, as I mentioned before, there were several um, Russians among the victims of the raid by Hamas early in October, because Israel has a huge, huge Russian diaspora of... um, both from the Soviet times and, and until like more recent immigrants. So some of them died, some of them were taken hostage, and there were some negotiations about getting the Russian hostages back. Right, okay, so that's the official line, but Israel certainly doesn't see it that way. They summoned the Russian ambassador over the visit of Hamas officials to Moscow. Um, do you think that this will deteriorate the relationship between Israel and Russia even further? Yeah, so we've already seen members of uh, Likud, Netanyahu's party, accusing Moscow of being on uh, Iran and Hamas's side. And based on what I've heard when I was in Israel last year, a lot of the Russian-speaking Israelis aren't buying what Putin's selling about uh, fighting Nazis in Ukraine. So if anything, they see the Russian side as the Nazis and Ukraine's the one with the Jewish president. On the other hand, I think after making a pariah of itself by invading Ukraine last year, Russia's winning back some friends in the global south Mm. as being the major power that's seemingly slightly on Hamas's side, or the Palestinian side anyway. One of the Kremlin's goals is working towards what they call a multipolar world order where the USA is not the dominant superpower uh, that can dictate what they want. And Putin kind of sees himself as the head of this anti-Western alliance, even though, and it's just my personal opinion, even though I think that's just swapping one imperialism for another. But I think also at this point, you know, Palestinians and their supporters, they're so marginalized in the sort of international community. I think, you know, they'll take what they can get. Yeah. So Putin is nothing if not an opportunist. And he clearly sees this war as an opportunity for him. 
Unfortunately, we can see a sharp deterioration of the situation in the Middle East. I think that many will agree with me that this is a clear example of the failure of the policy of the United States in the Middle East, which tried to monopolize the resolution of the conflict. What does he hope to gain from the world being distracted with this war between Hamas and Israel? Russia's forces are already stretched very thin. Look what's happening in the, or what happened recently in the South Caucasus between um, Azerbaijan and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, the, the Armenian enclave. Russia was supposed to act as a peacekeeper there, but its forces, where are they? They're occupied somewhere else in Ukraine. And I don't think they're in a hurry to engage the IDF, especially given both Russia and America's strong ties with Israel, not to mention America's got warships at the ready to deter any outsiders from intervening. And we don't want this to escalate to World War III. Right. I think if Russia does get involved, it'll be indirectly by continuing to do business with the Iranians, Assad, Hezbollah. Definitely, Israelis committing war crimes takes the heat off Russia committing war crimes. I know if Russia can capitalize on that in the battlefield, but diplomatically and in the news cycle, yeah, Russia's being granted a little break. It keeps the some of the heat off him for Ukraine. So Russia has a history of supporting Palestinian resistance groups while also maintaining a good relationship with Israel. How have they managed to maintain that balance, and do you feel that it could be fracturing? Historically, the USSR, after initially hoping that Israel would be socialist, quickly adopted an anti-Zionist position. During the Cold War, they trained Palestinian militants, they supported the Arab nations in the 1967-73 wars, and they actually cut off relations with Israel for a while. But then when communism collapsed in the late 80s, early 90s, obviously Israel's got the law of return. So now ex-Soviet Jews immigrate to Israel. And because of this huge diaspora, Russia's reluctant to alienate Israel completely. And Israel, for its part, tries not to annoy Moscow too much because to the north you've got Syria, you've got Hezbollah. There's this sort of unspoken agreement where Israel carries out airstrikes on Hezbollah and Moscow pretends not to notice it too much. By the way, I should also add that a lot of the ex-Soviet Jewish diaspora became very anti-communist because there were so many of them, I mean, millions of them. That helped push Israeli politics to riot, which is one of the reasons why we've been stuck with Netanyahu. And it's also worth mentioning that the Russian liberal opposition gets most of their opinions on Israel through this diaspora. So as a result, it's very rare to see any of them voicing support for Palestinians, even though, in my opinion, Putin and Netanyahu are cut from the same cloth. And yeah, finally, there's the relationship, personal relationship between uh, Putin and Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu. Fundamentally, they're not that different, you know, they're both gangsters, uh, strong men clinging to power by pointing fingers to enemies both outside and within. So I think they understand each other quite well. Yeah. But uh, as we've mentioned before, Putin was quite slow to convey his sympathies after the uh, October Hamas attack. So yeah, that might be on the rocks. I mean, look, everyone knows that Netanyahu went out of his way to court Putin and 
that strategy seems to be backfiring spectacularly right now. Knowing Putin the way you do, does that surprise you? Not really. I mean, like I said, Putin's a bit of a gangster. If you watch any gangster movie, there's no friends. There's just business associates whom you smile with. And then you take them to a secluded drive to a lake at 3 a.m. So, you know, nothing surprising there. After the break, we look at China's relationship with Israel, what they stand to gain, and how the world is finding itself divided yet again. On the Inside Story podcast, we'll examine what it will take to launch a war crimes investigation against Israel as its forces ramp up their attacks on Gaza. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today we are talking about where Russia and China stand on the Israel-Hamas war. To get the Chinese perspective, we're talking to Einar Tangen, who is joining us from Beijing. He's a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, a think tank seeking to help the world better understand China. So what is China's stance officially on this recent war between Hamas and Israel? Officially right now, China does not stand with Hamas. They certainly do not stand with Israel and its uh, attempts to go into Gaza. The U.S. has vetoed uh, numerous attempts to call for an immediate ceasefire. U.S., U.K., France, and Japan voted against the resolution. The U.S. said Russia failing to condemn Hamas is the reason why. Killing civilians is not the road to peace. So at this juncture, China has called for a immediate ceasefire and a return to the bargaining table by everybody uh, to find a two-state solution. Here's Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. The Israeli people have received assurance of their survival. But who is assuring the survival of the Palestinian people? So in terms of Israel, Israel and China established a relationship in 1992 and have developed close ties. Have you noticed that the war is straining this relationship? Of course it's straining the relationship. The Middle East is where China gets the majority of its oil, imported oil. They also see it as a huge market. You see the Gulf countries uh, pouring money into uh, Chinese investments because they're balancing their portfolios. China will suffer. Oil prices will go up. Trade will be disrupted. And it's not just China that will suffer. It's the entire world. Already you've seen an increase in the price of fertilizers. You've seen oil going up and down. That uncertainty is adding to the existing uncertainty that's that's caused by these kind of geopolitical trade and ideological competitions that are going on. None of this is good. Even if you if you went in the streets of Beijing and you talk to people, they're extremely concerned. They do believe that Israel is bullying Palestinians in their efforts to get at Hamas. I guess what you're saying is it reflects a real sympathy amongst the Chinese people for the Palestinian cause. I mean, people in China I've talked to, one of the main things they keep scratching their head out about is what is the end game? So Israel goes in, it's going to lose a lot of troops going into those tunnels. It's already talking about using nerve gas 
and white phosphorus and things like this in order to attack these tunnels. So they do that. Are they going to kill everybody in Hamas? No. They will escape. They have series of tunnels going all over the place. They're not going to trap them all. And then the question is, when they flee, or what are they going to do? On one side, they flattened Gaza. So there's no going back because there's nothing to go back to. So where are these people going to go? They're going to be more refugees. I mean, Americans were appalled when they saw uh, white women and children killed in Ukraine because they looked like people that they knew, for that they, they were related to, right? You have to understand that for the people of the Middle East, when they look at these children of Gaza, the women, what they see are their sisters, their mothers, their own children, right? This is visceral for them. The optics of the two wars, Ukraine-Russia and Israel-Hamas, is something we brought back to journalist Niko Vorobyov, who has been covering the Ukraine conflict for a while. So one thing that this conflict has done has muddied the waters a little bit in terms of the, the rationale for the Ukraine war. A lot of the people who are complaining about war crimes happening by the Russians are not commenting on what's happening with, with Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. I, I know that Vladimir Putin is, is trying to point that out to the rest of the world, and, and a lot of the world is actually listening. Yeah, I don't think the the Biden administration and the West, by mean by which I mean America and its and its allies, I think I don't think that they really appreciate just how much damage they're doing to to the perception of of them abroad, especially in like the Arab world, the Muslim world, and like the sort of global South developing countries. Um, because like the sort of the contrast between how they speak about Russia uh, and Ukraine and Israel and Palestine, it's never been so obvious. So like, for example, tearing up when you talked about Russian war crimes in Ukraine, but they're like, when they're talking about the, the children in Gaza, they're just like, eh, collateral damage. What are you going to do? Here's the U.S. National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby. This is war. It is combat. It is bloody. It is ugly. And it's going to be messy. And innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but it is It is going to happen. Yeah, I remember Ursula Vandula last year from the EU talking about how targeting civilian infrastructure is a war crime. Russia's committing war crimes. And then, like, when it comes to, to Israel cutting off water for Gaza, she's just like, eh, crickets. So, yeah, I didn't think that, that they really appreciate just how much damage that this, uh, this hypocrisy is and these double standards are doing to the perception of them among the public. We're going to see the ripples from this for just for years, uh, maybe even decades to come. And Nico, how does that how does that relate back to Russia and, and Russia's interests here to see their st- biggest strategic opponent in this position? So I guess it's kind of like the Cold War all over again, you know, like America's got the the rich Western capitalist countries and Russia's now trying to get back like followers of its own too, except this time, like back in the Cold War, you know, Russia or the USSR, there was like the socialist, internationalist 
ideology which you can get behind and not really sure what Russia has to offer now apart from nationalism and anti-westernism I guess which isn't really that appealing but as I've said the attitudes displayed by certain western leaders and their attitudes towards Palestine like it's never been more obvious so I think that to a certain extent anyway the world is splitting into teams again and that's the take this episode was produced by Khalid Sultan Zainab Badr Farnisa Kampana and me Kevin Hurton in for Malika Bilal with Sari El Khalili Amy Walters Chloe K. Lee David Enders Sonia Bhagat Miranda Lynn and Ashish Malhotra Alex Roldan is our sound designer Alexandra Locke is the Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.